0: But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.
2: The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. And a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 12. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, filling in today for Otis Gyre as he relocates back to Canada. Otis will be back up soon, but until he's settled in, I'll be your temporary guide down the lonely moonlit road. In tonight's episode... We'll be featuring four stories for you, specially chosen and performed by Mr. Jiry, just for you. About nefarious nature, nightmarish neighbors, dystopian dregs, and sinister societies. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which includes the first two stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this in our other episodes featuring twice the terror... Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. It's time to get started. So get cozy, have your safety blanket handy, and brace yourself. The show is about to begin. Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us from Aaron Shotwell and is entitled The Treekeeper.
3: I can see my house from here atop this small cliff at the edge of the woods. I suppose he could see his too once. But it's my time now. My time to look upon things taken from me. My turn to take root "'in what has become my new home. "'My father and I came here from Sussex in the spring of 1742. "'We were poor, barely getting by "'and not far from a life of poverty in the streets. "'Truth be told, we fared no better than that. "'Father was out of work, and we lived in a small hut "'that barely kept out the wind and snow.' We went days at a time without food and sickness. Came easy. Mother, she... Well, she didn't make it. Father and I barely scraped by that winter, and with nothing to show for it but a long, pitiless bout of mourning. I was only five at the time, helpless, and father swore he would never lose me the way he lost mother. "'Needless to say, it was a tough decision. "'But he supposed we'd find a better life in the colonies, "'even if the only way to see us across the Atlantic "'was in a red coat with a musket in hand. "'So, after a number of months at sea, "'we found ourselves in a small fort south of Boston, "'my father serving his majesty in the New World. "'We were sent here directly, "'with little to no welcome or induction.' They said Father would find everything he needed here on arrival, from training and briefing to housing accommodations. They said they needed all the help they could get, no time for formalities. Their sense of urgency made Father nervous, but we never really had a chance to protest or reconsider, especially since we had already come so far. We were escorted to our new home within a week. Fort Whalen, they called it, a fringe installment with no real strategic value. Apparently, the place served another purpose. At first, some spoke of it with sarcasm and dissent, annoyed to have been stationed there for such a ludicrous reason. They regarded it as nothing more than their commanding officer's paranoid response to an old ghost story. "'though some say they saw it with their own eyes. "'In any case, that fort was not meant to guard against any man. "'It was meant to keep something more sinister at bay. "'We had hardly settled in before we started seeing something too, whatever it was. "'They sounded like children about the same size I was.' Except they made no sound but for the rustling of leaves under their feet. Or at least, to what I assumed were feet. I never really saw them clearly either. Just fleeting glances before they scurried back into the brush or the treetops. They weren't human, that much was certain. They terrified every man within those fort walls, armed or otherwise, especially when they learned that weapons fire was useless. Every shot missed its mark. After all, one cannot hit what one can hardly see. When we arrived, hunting parties still regularly ventured deep into the woods in an attempt to rid us of whatever haunted them. Though the terror destroyed morale, and a few men even deserted. Rather, that's what we had hoped. They were never seen or heard from again, and nobody liked to entertain the idea of the alternative. Yet, for all of the constant fear and worry, there was only ever a single obvious victim, only one person for whom we could reasonably assume an unpleasant end. In spite of all of his masked forces and paranoia, it was the captain they claimed— The men said they found his quarters empty one day, ransacked, and the floor covered with fallen leaves and twigs. Just as the other unfortunates, he had vanished without a trace. Strangely, everything fell quiet after that. No more sounds of children pattering about the woods. No more sightings. No more terror. It seemed that they had claimed what they were after. They had no interest in the rest of us. Before long, the whole ordeal faded to an unpleasant memory, and a sense of normality finally settled in. By then, Father had already watched over those woods for the better part of twelve years. His service earned us enough money for a new life in this land, and we took the opportunity as soon as it presented itself. Father resigned from military service... "'choosing a civilian life to raise me and open a general store. "'When the military pulled out and stationed elsewhere, "'the fort itself served nicely for the foundations of a trading post. "'That is where we stayed for the remainder of my childhood. "'When he finally scraped together enough money, "'father left to open a store in South Boston. "'It was a dream he had spoken of from the moment we arrived on these shores.' I had helped run his business over the years, so he invited me to move with him to settle down and start a family business. Still, he left the decision up to me. I was seventeen, and he considered me a man. Looking back now, I wish I had. Instead, I chose to stay behind, struck my own path through life. I had made friends with some other boys during my time there, hunting rabbits in the woods after the danger had passed was something I loved, and several of us decided to make a living hunting and trapping, selling our wares, at the trade post in my father's old store. For the following five years, life had been good to me. The forest had blessed me with abundant bounty and a respectable living, as well as the attention of a young girl I might have married one day. I had built a happy life for myself, and I thought I had come to know every corner of those woods. But then they returned, and they showed me a place I never knew existed, a place with which I've since become all too familiar. They arrived slowly at first, a few rustling sounds on hunts, that I took for foxes or squirrels in the underbrush. Then the sounds grew in number, more frequent, more hectic, and they followed me. They were no animals I knew, these things that so boldly approached without fear of man. On one of my longer outings, they haunted my camp. I began to see them in the shadows, just beyond the firelight, clearer than I ever had before— Mischievous little imps, bodies like knots of wood and vines. Tufts of grass and flowering plants atop bobbling lumps with the vague semblance of heads. They danced like elated children in and out of the light. And they made sounds I'd never heard from them before. Scratchy, wet, clicking noises like ghostly giggles from "'broken throats. "'This behavior was new. "'Where they had once hidden from me, "'they now clearly sought my attention. "'In fact, they seemed to beckon. "'Truly, I sensed no hostility from them, "'and from the depths of the woods came something else new, "'a sweet scent hanging on the breeze, "'warm and welcoming in the same manner as freshly baked bread, "'perhaps more so.' I'd not have thought to call it merely pleasant. No, it was more... compelling. That scent, that bewitching aroma, came from them. It was a portent of their coming, and it grew stronger with their every visit. It was like nothing I had ever smelled, terribly powerful, and it stirred something in me. I know now that they used it to lure me and I'm sad to say that it was to great effect. Totally unaware of myself, I began to track my quarry on a very specific path, a narrow and invisible road marked by that damnable odor. When it would fade off, I would sink into melancholy and fatigue, dissatisfied with the typically brisk and invigorating air of the wild. I would make camp when it left me, sometimes early to ease my growing weariness, there I would remain until the scent returned, and it always did. Those woods nearly chewed me to the bone before I found my way through, and the imps of leaf and root led me faithfully to my fate. I crawled my way through a gauntlet of dense thorn brushes, from dawn till dusk, and they left my clothing in tatters that barely clung to my form. I was an utter mess, cake from head to toe, in the drying filth of the untamed acres I left behind. I had no provisions left, and little energy left for travel. One can imagine my relief when I finally emerged into a clearing, and in that clearing awaited a small, crude, precariously constructed cabin. I was astonished, to say the least, it was deeper in the woods than I had ever bothered to explore, deeper than my trade would ever take me, and watched too far for any sign of civilization to be worth the trip. For whatever reason, the latter half of my journey provided little to no game to sustain me, let alone to make a living. Worse yet, I could find no source of clean water within reasonable distance. would built a home here and how could they possibly hope to survive? Of course, I was not in the proper state of mind to give these questions the consideration they warranted. Near death, and with no way to survive the trek home, even if the imps would grant me control of my senses to do so, I could only rejoice at the chance of rescue. So I approached the cabin, hoping beyond hope for a hot meal... "'a cool drink and a warm bed for the night. "'It was only in those first few steps into the clearing "'that I escaped the bewitching scent trail for the first time "'in what must have been months. "'I left home in the middle of summer that year, "'and I arrived at the cabin "'to find leaves crunching beneath my boots. "'And with that sound came another realization. "'It was the only sound I could hear. "'In fact, It was the only sound I had heard in quite some time. For days preceding, as far as I could tell, I had been the only source of movement or life in those woods. I hadn't heard so much as a single bird chirping in the canopy. I had been too entranced by the scent to notice, but no life resided there other than the trees, myself, and whoever occupied the mysterious cabin that stood before me. The thought unnerved me, though not enough to sway me from seizing the chance. Slowly, cautiously, I approached the door. Each step through the crunching forest floor betrayed my presence, rendering any attempt at stealth effectively useless. Something about the place seemed so ominous, so damning. Part of me felt the urge to flee, but... Another part felt welcome. Little did I know just how welcome I really was, but I would soon learn. As my loud approach sounded in the otherwise total silence, nothing answered my intrusion, yet somehow I still knew I was not alone. I couldn't see it, I couldn't hear it, but something or someone was watching. It had been watching my entire journey through this territory, watching with eager intent. It summoned me here, and for a reason. Nobody answered my knocks, so I slowly opened the door about the width of my wrist and peered inside. There, at the far end of the nearly empty room, I found a rather disturbing surprise— An old, thin man curled up on a bed made of leaves and grass, and I recognized his face. Captain Harrison, who no one had seen since we found his office, abandoned all those years ago. He had apparently been living here in seclusion. I'm unsure just how long I stood there staring at him. I had not seen the man since I was a small child, I'd given him up for dead like everyone else. Yet yeah, here he was, alive and looking like he had seen the worst of every year since his disappearance. He'd wasted away to nearly nothing, now little more than a rickety skeleton, and thinning skin pocked over with the response. He'd bawled significantly and what little hair skirted that shiny hemisphere had grown long and matted with filth. The only familiar part of him was his uniform, although it had changed just as much. It had grown dirtier than I had ever imagined any garment could, and rendered nearly to shreds. "'Captain Harrison?' I hesitantly called. He started, as did I. He seemed ill, laying with such stillness that I thought he'd taken to his deathbed. The sudden movement was jarring, but I couldn't blame him. It must have been the first word he'd heard spoken by another in years. "'Who's there?' he croaked, thinning his eyes against the fresh light shining through the gloom. At first I was speechless. I could not bring myself to reply.' "'Who's there? Who calls me by that name?' he hoarsely demanded. "'I I, I knew you,' I stammered. "'My father, he he served under you, Fort Wayland. Do you remember?' He stood on weak legs and hobbled toward me as quickly as they would carry him. I recalled a bit when he thrust his face uncomfortably close to my own. He gazed at me with bewilderment as if through a dense fog. Wayland. You. The young ones. He muttered, and his fall breath stung my eyes. He paused at length and looked away. Now. Another time. Another life. I have no name now. I am. Uh, I care for them. They need me. He trailed off, meandering back to his bed of grass. He lay down and faced the wall, dismissing my presence. I raised my voice, shouted, poked, and prodded, but to no avail. It didn't seem that he was ignoring me so much as in his mind I simply ceased to exist. I could hear him muttering in his fitful sleep, something about elder trees and saplings and how he wished to join them. Clearly he had gone quite mad, though if he had indeed been tormented by the same entities that led me to him, if he suffered that bewitching odor and the dancing of the imps for all those years, his state of mind made perfect sense. I could not imagine what he must have been through. Begrudgingly, I gave up trying to rouse him. He would answer my questions in the morning. Till then, I was content to rest on the other side of the room. Honestly, I should have never closed my eyes in such a dreadful place, much less while sharing it with a madman. However, I had no strength to brave those woods any farther. I doubt the imps would have let me wander far Anyway. I had little choice. My sleep was restless that night, even painful. Torrential dreams of howling voices calling to me. Clouds of dust rose and swirled about me, obscuring my vision. It grew thicker, settling atop my tongue, in my nostrils and ears, and over my eyes. It solidified around me like a crystallizing tomb, and I soon found myself held tightly within the crushing fist of the earth. The weight of ages grew tighter against my body, constricting me until it squeezed the last breath of air from my lungs. I should have died then, but I somehow remained awake and alert enough to sense the minute rumbling of something weaving through the soil. Roots worked their way around my arms and legs, ensnaring them as my eyes darted in panic behind closed lids. There was no escape. They wound about my torso and they pierced my chest with surprising sharpness. Through the burning agony, I could feel the narrow ends blanketing and squeezing my heart. The pain grew ever more intense, throbbing through my arteries and veins, just as my limbs fell numb. I heard a faint voice. We're a new one, my lords, it said. He is young and strong, this one, a man of the forest. He will serve you well. And all fell silent. Waking was bittersweet. I gulped deep lungfuls of air in shock. Breathing so quickly made my head spin and my heart pound, but I didn't care. Each sweet breath warned me to never take life for granted again, and I wouldn't. I stretched my limbs and flexed my digits, and I sighed as I felt the blood flow through them once more. Thank God it was only a nightmare. It was a horror I hoped never to experience again. Yet, despite my relief, I awoke in terrible discomfort. I had gone to sleep hungry, thirsty, and exhausted, and it had grown far worse in the night. My skin had lost its pallor, and I felt lightheaded. My vision had turned hazy. My mouth felt like a sweltering desert, and I was starving. I had never felt so ill in all my life. Most disturbing of all, a curious rash had spread across my chest, violently red and swollen, and it burned like fire. It originated from the point where the dream roots had pierced my flesh. The agony I suffered that night, whatever had caused it in waking reality, had been real. Had I been in a more stable state of mind, I might have suspected ill intent from the deranged Harrison. But I could think only of my parched throat and the gnawing hunger pains. I could hardly move and Harrison was nowhere to be found. So I crawled desperately for the door, slowed by my sudden weakness, but I could not stop. The pangs of hunger were relentless. I would have eaten the dead leaves of the forest floor to ease the pain if I had to, and I nearly did just that. I was already holding a crumbling mass to my open mouth before I saw something far more appetizing in the distance. I saw Harrison, just past the trees in another tiny clearing, tending to a small vegetable garden. Behind him sat a basket of crudely woven tree bark containing what appeared to be large, distorted turnips. They looked edible, and that was the only thing that interested me. I rose and scrambled for the clearing faster than I would have thought my ailments would permit. Desperation is our greatest motivator, it seems. All I could see was food, and my aching body would not stand between me and those peculiar vegetables. I tumbled and clumsily overturned the basket, spilling its contents to the muddy patch of their growth. Still, I heard no protest from Harrison if he was even yet aware of my presence. He seemed much too busy doting over those roots, still buried to care. The strange vegetable pulsed in my hands like a fervorish heart, and it felt warm, alive in a way no plant should be. But its alien nature did not sway me. I didn't even bother to brush away the mud, I just bit in through the filth, and it released sweet fluid that quenched my burning throat. The husk, rich and succulent, tasted of cooked flesh and the purest goodness of earth. It washed my pain away, made me whole again, and it would sustain me for a time. The sudden relief was overwhelming. It calmed my mind and relaxed my body, and I fell into a more peaceful slumber though not before catching a blurry glimpse of Harrison's face gazing down at me. He wore a satisfied grin. I awoke in the cabinet with the last light of dusk spilling through the half-open door. I'd been out for most of the day, and Harrison had apparently carried me. How he even managed to budge me with his waning muscles, I'll never know. In hindsight, I suppose it might not have been him at all, but some other unseen hand. He sat across from me, watching me as he bit into one of the roots that had saved my life. He wore the same grin all the while, munching the life-giving vegetable with yellowing teeth, some broken or missing. He stared into my eyes at length, and he chuckled through a mouthful of the strange turnip. What's so funny, I asked, finally able to speak. He chuckled again, and he stared at the rash on my exposed chest. It had turned leathery and thick like a nasty scar. I touched it, and I could swear that it moved beneath my fingertips, however slightly. I recoiled in horror and his chuckle turned into a full belly laugh, juice dribbling down his chin. I was confused and infuriated. What in the bloody hell is this? I demanded. What's happening to me? What have you done? The seed, he murmured. I narrowed my eyes at him, dissatisfied with his answer. He continued speaking louder this time. They planted their seed planted it there.' "'He pointed to the leathery scar with one bony finger. "'I clutched my chest with a looming sense of dread. "'What have you done to me, old man?' "'I demanded once more, moving to strike him, but I froze as he stood. "'He gave no reply, only removed the thin garment covering his torso.' unveiling a horror I shudder to remember, even now, especially in knowing that one day my fate will be the same. His body, weathered as it had become, was covered in the same leathery scars. They wrapped about his distended belly and over his ribs like a menacing talon, much darker than my own, swollen and visibly undulating with parasitic light. Some scars had hardened like bark, some with small, fleshy branches, and some hosted flaps of softer skin, not unlike leaves, riddled with inflamed and burst veins, reddened with his lifeblood. "'Here you see!' he laughed in madness. "'This is the gift I give to you.' The sight was too much to bear." My gorge rose and I nearly vomited, but he shouted at me furiously. No, you mustn't waste the feeding root. They gave it to you. You will be grateful. I swallowed hard. A cold sweat glazed my skin as I beheld his grotesque form. What? What are you? I stammered. A menacing smile crept across his lips. I am ascended, boy. Evolved. I eat of the root every day that they might grow. I tended to my masters in their need, keep them safe and hearty. I give them my flesh, and soon, soon I will join them. I will become one of their elder trees. This is my reward. I gasped a series of deep, panicked breaths. You call this a reward? I tried to calm myself and gather my thoughts. What is this place? What are they? Why are they bring me here? They need you. Need me for what? Why me? They will tell you. You will hear them soon. I grew tired of his cryptic nonsense. Well, I want no part of it. I just want to go home. Don't you see? He gestured to our surroundings, the forest clearing, and the cabin. This is your home. A new home. You've been chosen. I wouldn't hear another word of it. I gathered all of my strength and ran for the door, threw it open in a rage, and sprinted blindly into the woods. You've nowhere to run, he called after me. They'll not let you leave. I ignored his warning. Nothing could keep me there. Not if I could help it. Nettles and twigs stung my bare feet with every step. Bare bushes left me covered in cuts and scrapes. I had no idea where I was going, but I didn't care. I only wished to put as much distance between me and that horrible place as possible. I would not be their prisoner. I ran through the night, even through total darkness. It wasn't until I tripped for the third time and sprained my ankle that I finally stopped. I fully expected the imps, or something more terrifying, to pounce on me and drag me back to the clearing. They didn't. They didn't need to, I soon learned. As I stubbornly crawled even further into the forest, just as Harrison said, the voices finally caught up to me. Or perhaps it would be inaccurate to call them voices. They used no words, only expressed the force of their will with demanding aches in my head. They didn't have spoken, for I understood them all the same. They were the trees, the oldest and wisest of them. The elders. They called for my return, and their fury stirred the scar upon my chest. I could feel it writhing much stronger than before, and it made a noise, a diminutive whine. I could feel it tightening around my heart in anger. I rolled about in agony, clutched my chest, and begged it to stop. It wanted to eat me again, to feed it, and its hunger was ravenous. Just when I thought it would kill me, it loosened its grip and allowed me to move, but the voices never ceased. I had no idea what I could do, I desperately brushed my hands through the leaves and dirt in the dark. Surely there had to be something I could eat, something to quiet the stirring of the parasite. At last I found a small scattering of berries. They might have been poisonous, but I took my chances. I filled my mouth to capacity as fast as I could, and my jaw ached as I chewed and swallowed too quickly. I sighed with relief, certain that I quelled the hunger of the seed in my chest. However, only moments after I swallowed, the juices and pulp came spewing forth from my throat and onto the dry leaves. The berries hadn't even reached my stomach before they were ejected, and the voices in my head sounded once more. "'The root,' they said." and the parasite gave one more nourishing, breath-stealing squeeze. The parasite would only accept the root that sated it before, and that's when I understood. This thing in my chest, this seed, was no gift at all. It was a leash. I had never seen that strange vegetable before my time in the clearing, and I suspected I would find it nowhere else. Doubtless, they grew only at the feet of the elder trees. I would have died that night had I not stumbled upon a small stream, the first I had ever come across since I left my home months before. Perhaps I thought it was the water source that fed the root patch, and I could safely assume that my captors agreed as the pain in my chest... "'and the voices in my head began to subside "'as I followed it to the south. "'I followed its winding trail until morning "'and it led me faithfully to the patch "'where I gorged myself on my only available relief. "'Through mouthfuls and short breaths, "'I looked around in sorrow at my prison, defeated. "'The seed was within me now "'and I could survive nowhere else. "'Of course,' Harrison knew this all too well, so it was no surprise to find him waiting for me. You cannot leave, boy, he gravely declared as he trudged toward me through the mud. Your old life is over. You serve us now. I could give no reply. I knew he was right, and I despaired. Just as I finished off the route, the voices called again. Louder this time, and Harrison heard them, too. The largest of the trees groaned, and they seemed to lean inward toward him, almost as if bowing in respect. "'It is time!' he exclaimed. "'At last! Oh, how I've waited for this day! "'Thank you, my lords!' I watched as great roots rose from the soil and wrapped about his legs, climbed his body, and pierced between his ribs. His pain was obvious, and yet he laughed through the blood pooling in his mouth, giving thanks until his last breath. Before long, he fell still and silent, His glassy eyes focused on mine as the last of the roots sealed him in a wooden cocoon and dragged him beneath the soil. It was the strangest, most frightening thing I had ever witnessed. Soon he was gone forever, and I was left alone to contemplate my fate. That night, as I rested on the newly vacant bed of grass... I heard from him one last time Speaking with a wordless force of will The same as the elder priest. These were his parting words to me Service Care for us as I cared for them before you Here you will have all you will need Service well and in death Live forever among us "'That was twenty-five years ago, and I have lived here alone ever since. "'I keep the elders healthy, I tend the saplings and the feeding roots, "'and I sate the seed in my chest to live. "'I am the treekeeper, just as many before me. "'And one day some unwitting child will take my place. "'Over time the trees will take back the forest,' They will take the dwellings of man, and we can only hope they will spare us, if only to serve them. Until then, I will give them my flesh in labor, and to feed the seed that will preserve my soul in ancient wood."
2: Our second story this evening was penned by author Kenneth Cole, entitled, The Kids Next Door.
3: But Jesus said, Suffer the little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. After a job-related relocation to Indianapolis, my family and I were given an allowance to rent a home in the city in order to give us some time to look for our forever home. That rental, a hundred-year-old house that was considered historic and couldn't be gentrified, was charming in its own way, but it gave us a pretty good idea of what we did not want. It had some uh, quirks, but we got used to them. Ah, but that's another story for another time. To sum it up, though, that rented house was cold, damp, and dark throughout. It got to be pretty depressing at times. Indianapolis is like a gemstone in the middle of Indiana, albeit one whose clarity, cut in color, would never pass a jeweler's quality control measures. What I mean is that it's a bright, glaring concrete and glass island in the middle of what some consider flyover country pretty much all farmland. Indy doesn't have much to offer in the way of suburbs. Its central business district is surrounded by a pretty ugly industrial zone, littered with slums and trailer parks, which gives way almost immediately to open fields. Having lived in big cities all our lives, my wife and I were ready for a change. Plus, we wanted somewhere safe and with lots of space where our kids could grow up. We wanted them to have a swing set, a place to ride their bikes, not crowded sidewalks and busy streets right outside the door. We weren't having much luck, though. Then we struck gold. We found a plot of land about 20 miles outside of downtown, agricultural land that had been rezoned for a residential that was smack dab in the middle of wide-open fields with a nice stand of trees at the rear of the property as a bonus. The nearest neighbor was a horse farm, about a half mile down the road. It was a place that we could build our dream home, so we put down the money, found an architect and contractor, and commenced construction. The first snag during construction would become an omen of what was to come, but at the time we thought it was just an inconvenience. Being an engineer myself, I was keeping a close eye on construction. I paid daily visits to the site and planned to watch everything from the groundbreaking until the final tack installed in the carpeting. The contractor had broken ground and was beginning excavation for the basement and footings. They were making good time until one fateful day. I showed up at the site after work to find that the contractor's men had left, the equipment was gone, and there was a large, and obviously ancient, metal tank sitting on the ground at the edge of the hole. Uh Uh-oh. I immediately called the foreman, and he told me that while digging, they'd broken through a brick cistern about 15 feet under the grade. He almost lost a piece of equipment down the 30-foot-deep hole underneath. They had found the metal tank near the well and pulled it out, It would have to be inspected by the EPA to test for environmental hazards, and that would set them back about a week. He was more concerned, however, about how he was going to work around the deep hole. Filling it in with soil would cause settling problems later, and he certainly couldn't fill it with concrete. It would have raised the construction cost by tens of thousands of dollars. When I told my friends about the obstacle my contractor had stumbled upon, almost all of them joked, What's next, an ancient Indian burial ground? I laughed. I had a sense of humor about it back then. After the EPA cleared us, the contractor proceeded with construction. He'd come up with a plan to cast a reinforced concrete beam across the top of the old cistern and cast the house's footing across it. So I got the bonus of having the north wall of my home supported by a very deep footing. Not a bad deal, but even after moving in and living there for years, the thought of that big, dark, empty space lying beneath my basement floor uh, sort of gave me the willies. There were no other hitches throughout the rest of the home's construction, save for the usual deviation from plans and wrong materials being delivered. No more big surprises, although they did pull up the occasional interesting brick or antique tool when doing earthwork around the yard. When complete, our new forever home was the complete antithesis of the rental we were moving out of. The floor plan was open and airy, with plenty of light streaming in from the windows in every wall. A particular favorite spot for the whole family was a large all-glass sunroom at the back of the home, It was a beloved place to curl up on the couch and read during the winter, or sit and watch the children play during the summer. During the fall, we had a beautiful view of the woods and the changing colors of the leaves. It was perfect. For a while, anyway. It was a few weeks after building a huge swing set playhouse for our two boys that I first noticed the four children playing in our backyard— Two boys and two girls. The oldest of the girls seemed to be in her early teens, and the youngest, her brother, I assumed, perhaps five or so. The age of my youngest son. The boys were outfitted in coveralls, and the girls were dressed in simple shifts. Their clothes reminded me of the Amish, and since the nearest neighbor was the horse farm, I naturally assumed that the children belonged to the couple owning the place. Odd. We had met them briefly when moving into the new house, and they never mentioned having kids. Some people are funny that way, though. I was happy to see the children. I'd been thinking that my own kids were not going to have anyone to play with, no friends. And here were four children who obviously lived quite close. I opened the back door and stepped out onto the deck. "'Hey there, guys!' I no sooner got out the words than the kids reacted." They looked up at me, seemingly startled, and took off running. "'Wait, it's okay. You're welcome to—' I trailed off. I hope I I didn't scare them. I found myself wishing that they would come back. Perhaps I would take a walk down to their parents' farm when I had the time and let them know that the children were allowed to play in our yard, that we didn't mind. After a couple of days, I realized that it had slipped my mind— but it didn't matter because the children were back playing on the swing set again. I figured that I should approach them more carefully this time. I put together a tray with a pitcher of Kool-Aid and some cookies, an international sign of goodwill among kids, and started out the back door once again. Anyone up for some cookies? I called out. It didn't work, though. They caught a glimpse of me and took off through the trees again. Damn! felt really bad for scaring them. I really needed to get over to that farm and talk to them. Once again, though, I got busy with other things, and the task went on the back burner. I came up with a plan. Sure enough, the kids came back. This time, though, instead of going outside myself, I sent my own two boys, then five and seven, out as ambassadors. My strategy worked. The children were a bit wary at first, but soon warmed up to my boys, After a while, I called the boys in and sent some drinks and snacks out with them. Once I had seen that all of the kids had taken something, I went outside. This time, the children didn't run away. The older girl spoke up. "'Please forgive us, sir. We didn't mean to play here without your permission.' "'Ah, nonsense,' I replied. "'You can all come over whenever you feel like it, whether my boys are out or not. We're neighbors.' I received a chorus of thank yous from the children. Well, I'll leave you to it. Once again, I'm happy that you kids are around. I'm sure my boys will enjoy your company. The boys did enjoy their company. Over the following weeks, they'd all become the best of friends. My boys began asking if they could go to the children's farm to play, and I hesitated at first because of their ages, but soon relented. The children seemed so nice and polite, after all. And the oldest girl was what my wife and I thought of as babysitting age, so I figured that they were safe with her. One day my boys arrived home with dirty clothes, dirtier than usual, and I asked them what they'd been up to. Nothing was the usual reply, but this time my older son, by then eight years old, seemed really excited. We're out checking the cemetery, Dad. Boy, that came as a shock. "'It was my first impression that there was nothing around us. "'What cemetery?' "'The one in the woods,' my boy said. "'The other kid showed us.' "'Well, this I had to see for myself. "'I'd been a kid once, too, though I barely remembered it. "'I did recall making up places. "'An old boathouse became a fort for my younger self. "'The fishing pond seemed like an ocean. "'The kids had probably found some interesting-looking rocks.' and imagined that they were tombstones. Still, I asked if they could show me. My younger son was tired and went directly upstairs to take a bath, but my older one, still full of energy, was eager to go. It's getting dark, Dad. We'd better get there while we still can't see. He led me off into the woods at the back of the property. Needless to say that I was shocked by what I saw. Well, I'll be damned. "'I mumbled to myself. "'There was a farm back there in the woods, "'a small one, yes, but a farm nonetheless. "'It was in decrepit condition and no longer inhabited. "'No house left, but there was a small barn, half-falling down, "'a corral that looked like it once held sheep or goats, "'and a large low structure, another barn, "'but perhaps for the small animals or chickens. "'There was an old truck back there.' Not a truck like you'd normally picture, but a panel truck on wagon wheels, the type that you would see drawn by a horse. And right there, in the center of it, a cemetery. I'll be damned, I repeated. There were five tombstones visible, two large ones and three smaller ones, the smallest measuring about one foot square. In the center of these, and toppled over by a tree that had grown practically around it, was a large, prism-shaped monument with a roughly chiseled sphere on top that had some names chiseled in it. Baden was the largest letters, probably the family name. Still, in a state of surprise, I quickly looked over the smaller stones. They were dated from the early 1900s, and doing some quick math, I deduced that the inhabitants of the graves ranged in age from less than a year to thirty-eight. I don't know how I had never seen it before. I would hiked a short way into the woods before, but somehow missed this farm. Granted, the barn, the tallest structure, was weathered and its planks had turned gray to match the surrounding cedars. But still, it only sat about 25 yards from the edge of the woods. Once I knew it was there, it became obvious. I looked out at it from my bedroom window every morning. This definitely deserved looking into I dug into everything I could find on the Internet and at the local library. It seemed that these Pioneer cemeteries dotted central Indiana. A quick search turned up at least three more within a couple miles of my house. The Baden Cemetery, my cemetery, however, was not listed among them. The long and short of it was this. During the late 19th century, pioneers were crossing the Midwest on their way to America's west coast. Many of them found sufficient places along the way and decided to settle in those spots. They would build their tiny homesteads and usually live out their lives there. Many of the older families still remain. The reason for the concentration of these homesteads and cemeteries around our area was the proximity to what would become Route 40, one of the first major travelways across the United States. Unfortunately for many of the budding families, the great influenza epidemic of 1918 struck. Dense populations fell quickly because of communal wells and sanitary facilities. Even the outlying farms fell victim because of shared groundwater or a family member that had picked up the bug on a visit to town. Most of these smaller homesteads fell into disrepair in their farms, and deceased were absorbed back into the wilderness. As the old family cemeteries were discovered, they were usually cleaned up out of respect for the dead, and there were vast movements in societies dedicated to restoring the tombstones and their gravesites, as well as compiling records of those who were buried there. On one of my almost daily visits to the cemetery, I verified that the residents had indeed all died in or about 1918, victims of the flu, sure enough. Once all my sources of information were exhausted, I contacted the local historical society. I told the representatives about the cemetery and expressed my interest in helping to clean it up and get it recorded in the historical register. They were excited and sent someone out, literally within hours, to take a look. Her name was Jody, I believe. Jody and I walked out to the woods, she asked all types of questions, and told me a little bit about the history of the area most of which I had already discovered on my own. She did point out a couple of interesting things, though. She had brought a long piece of rebar and began walking around, poking it into the ground. Just just as I expected. She said, "'There are more.' "'More?' "'Yes, more. More graves.' She explained that, because the grave markers were small and not supported on concrete pads— as they typically are now, they tended to sink into the ground. She estimated that there may have been up to twenty-five people buried there. The other tidbit she let me in on was a little disconcerting. "'If you find any bones, let me know immediately.' "'What? Bones?' She went on to explain that although most of the wooden coffins tended to rot away over time, foxes would sometimes pull up metal hinges, jewelry, bits of clothing... "'and even bones. "'After everything that I had been through in my life, "'I was not squeamish. "'Still, this revelation st- sat ill with me. "'Throughout all of this, "'the thought of the neighbor's children had taken a backburner. "'They were the ones who were really responsible for the discovery. "'Perhaps they knew more. "'I would definitely need to talk to them. "'I told Jody about them, "'and she expressed an interest in meeting them also.' While she had me on the phone, she asked me if she could email some documents that she had found regarding my neighbors, as she had taken to calling them, the family who were most likely occupying the graves out there behind me. I remember joking that they were the perfect neighbors, always quiet and never asking to borrow my lawnmower. While the Baden family were the final owners of the farm, Jody found out that they had married into the family of the original owners, The Buckshot family. Turned out that the Buckshot boys were grave robbers by trade. The not-so-nice kind who opened recently filled graves to steal jewelry and valuables. They'd gotten into trouble for it a number of times. Ironic, since we would almost be... well, digging up some of their graves. Only we wouldn't be stealing anything, just restoring and preserving them for history and out of respect. The neighbor's kids hadn't been around in a while, so Jody never got the chance to talk to them. After a bit of research on her part, she found an heir to the sliver of property, one who didn't even realize that his family had owned the land in the area, and they had made arrangements for him to begin clearing the area with the assistance of volunteers from the local Pioneer Cemetery Restoration Society. They did find a number of bones at the back of the farm, but determined that was the location where the farmers had slaughtered hogs and dumped their carcasses. The workers had not come across any human remains yet. My interest in the project did not wane. In fact, it intensified. I began visiting other cemeteries and museums. The Indiana State Museum had a large exhibit dedicated to relics of the early 20th century, with a section devoted to burial practices, which were a fact of life, big part of life, given harsh conditions that the early settlers had faced. That's when it started to become creepy for me. I was fascinated by some of the vestiges of the time that the museum curators had on display. Fancy burial clothes, photos of the dead in their coffins, a common practice, apparently. Ringlets woven of hair from the deceased as remembrances, and most disconcerting, Small caskets, child-sized coffins. that really hit home. Being a father of two young boys, I was disturbed by the thought of a parent having to bury their fledgling child. Then I saw it, the thing that would haunt my dreams. A child-sized casket with a window set into it. A window that would display the child's face and upper body. There are photos of such coffins with their occupants displayed next to it. All that went through my mind was, when the hell would someone ever do that? That is so freaking disturbing. Back in the day, people were certainly a different breed. I left the museum immediately and literally could not even eat the rest of the day. From that point on, I lost interest in the work going on in the woods behind my house. "'Honestly, I didn't lose interest so much as I avoided it. "'I dreaded the thought of the workers unearthing one of the small caskets. "'Caskets that were undoubtedly out there, "'given the ages shown on the grave markers. "'Worse still, what if one of them had that glass pane in it? "'I couldn't handle seeing that, no way. "'I did my best to forget about the whole mess.' After avoiding a few of Jody's calls, she must have finally gotten a message and stopped bothering me. I warned my boys not to go near the cemetery, even if the neighbor's kids urged them to play out there. Not wanting to scare them, I explained it away with the excuse that the barn was old and dangerous, ready to collapse at any moment, and that the volunteers working out there did not want to be disturbed. Ironically, the big discovery came on Halloween Day 2012. Jody thought that it was a big enough event that she skipped calling and just came knocking at my door. They had begun working near the graves, raising sunken markers, and had inadvertently pulled up an entire child's casket—one of those sort with the glass window. The glass had been shattered, of course, but Jody said that the remains were in remarkable condition. She asked if I wanted to come out and take a look. I told her that I simply wasn't interested anymore and slammed the door before she had another chance to speak. I warned the boys again that they were not to play in the woods, especially after the discovery. My worry was doubled because of the holiday. As I said, it was Halloween. What better way for kids to celebrate than visiting a spooky graveyard and telling ghost stories? The afternoon faded, Dusk came and darkness soon followed. Even moonlight could not filter through the overcast night sky. Around nine o'clock, I heard banging on the back door. Trick-or-treaters? Not in our neighborhood. It was too far out of the way, not enough houses. Didn't make economic sense for true candy-hunting aficionados. I went out to the door and looked out. It was the neighborhood kids. Only three of them. They seemed to have left the youngest boy at home. Relieved, I opened the door and apologized. Sorry, kids, I didn't think we'd be getting any trick-or-treaters tonight. Guess I didn't plan ahead, I chuckled. But I'll catch you next time, okay? One by one, their faces changed to outrage. Pure hatred. And the politeness that they had always exhibited disappeared entirely. "'Blast you, you cussed old boat licker!' said the older of the two brothers. "'Fuck off, you Nancy boy prick!' said the younger girl, explicitly appalling given her age. The older girl finally said, "'Let's leave this blue-nosed twat to the devil,' and the children ran off into the woods. "'Damn it all, what the hell got gotten into them?' Just because I didn't have candy? I was so angry that I paced for half an hour. My boys, still awake, had come down to see what was going on. You're never playing with those damn kids again, I threatened. But in reality, I thought, at least not until I get an apology and an explanation. I gave my boys a lecture on politeness and sent them off to bed. I sat down in my favorite chair and flicked on the television... Due to the complete blackness outside, I didn't see them approach the house, but I was startled when all three children slammed their hands against the great windows along the back of the house. Sticking their tongues out at me, they chanted in unison, Tell me you've been gone all day, that you make whoopee all night. I'm going to take my razor and cut you late hours. You wouldn't think I'd be serving you right. I said, Undertaker, been here and gone. I gave him your height and size. You'd be making whoopee with the devil in hell tomorrow night. Then they ran off. It wasn't long before they returned, banging on the windows altogether. Scared the crap out of me. Again they were chanting, this time a more detailed and descriptive song. We'm gonna cut your head four different ways. A, B, C, D. That's a long, short, deep, and wide. I'm gonna cut EFG right across your face, H-I-J-K, that's where running bound to take place, cut L-M-N across both your arms, and we'll sell them, pedal gal, your whole life long. And so on. You get the gist? At least these kids knew their alphabet. This continued most of the night, long after normal kids should be asleep in their beds. I would definitely be visiting their parents the next day, first thing in the morning. We were already in bed when I heard the glass break. One of them had thrown a rock at a window downstairs and it shattered the pane. I ran down the steps and threw open the back door. A man of words and not of deeds is like a garden full of weeds. And when the weeds begin to grow, it's like a garden full of snow. And when the snow begins to fall... It's like a bird upon the wall And when the bird away does fly It's like an eagle in the sky And when the sky begins to roar It's like a lion at the door And when the door begins to crack It's like a stick across your back And when your back begins to smart It's like a penknife in your heart And when your heart begins to bleed You're dead You're dead You're dead indeed Again, they ran off. I decided that I wasn't going to play around anymore. I knew that they were only children, but I grabbed a baseball bat from a bin in my garage and took up a post on the steps of my deck in the backyard. Let's just see them come back again, I thought. The next time, it was only the teenage girl who came out of the woods. She approached me cautiously, her head lowered, not looking me in the eyes. We're sorry, sir she said softly. We're just so angry. They took our brother. What? I wrinkled my brow. Who took your brother? Why? The bad people. They came to our farm and took our brother away. An anxious feeling began creeping into me. I felt a shiver up my spine. Where are your parents? Dead, sir, she replied matter-of-factly. Hold on. Now I was in an outright panic. Was this a prank? What if it wasn't? Not to be made a fool of, I wasn't about to call the police just yet. I told the girl to wait at the house while I jumped into my car and sped down the road to the neighbor's farm. The lights were on in the house, and I could see someone moving inside, so I approached the front door. After I felt sure that it was safe, I screwed up my courage and knocked. The owner of the farm answered. "'Oh, thank God you're okay.' I breathed a sigh of relief. Then my anger returned tenfold. "'Do you know what your damn kids have been up to?' He looked at me as if I was a lunatic. "'What are you going on about? We don't have any kids.'
2: I'm Steve Taylor. Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you'd like to learn more about me, you can visit my website at stevetvo.com. That's Steve T as in Thomas, V as in Victor, O as in Oscar, dot com. Or check out my featured narrator page at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended version of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for and get access to extended episodes of not just this show, but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases, including premium versions of our other shows such as the Simply Scary Podcast and Horror Hill. Not only that, but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help us continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Until next time, I'm Steve Taylor, filling in for Otis Gyre, and inviting you to turn off the lights and turn on the dark.
3: But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway?
1: <laughs> you can live out your master chef dream.